Peace. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. I'm your host, Nefriesian. This isn't actually just another episode. This is our last episode of season one. And man, what a what a great journey it has been for a first season of this podcast. And I guarantee you that season two is coming. I already have some great interviews on deck for next year. But let's let's focus on 2020 and what we've all been through. And uh, give ourselves a pat on the back for making it through all of this craziness, all the turmoil, uncertainty. I mean, the beginning with the uprising and mass awakening, to surviving a pandemic, to a crazy presidential election, all the many just difficulties and hardships of 2020 and we've made it through and I think this episode is going to be a great way to wrap up this year because it's it's it's, an, it's a story of an amazing black man who has found a way to thrive in this world but wasn't born with a lot of privilege you know he's had a tough road but instead of succumbing to the difficulties in his life he found a way to overcome them he dug in he found that will to win and he you know he embraced the mentality of losing wasn't an option which is something I think that as black people specifically we have mastered or we have to master in our lives more than any other segment of our society. And so this is a great episode for folks to learn from, be inspired by. And I just want to thank you all for supporting the podcast. And I look forward to bringing you all season two. Per usual, I have two quick favors to ask. If you're new to the podcast, please subscribe. And if you're on Instagram, go on over and give us a follow at Bootstraps Podcast. Let's get into it. Peace. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. Brother, why don't you go ahead and uh, tell everybody your name and let them know what it is that you do. Yes, sir. Kevin Hamilton. Um, I'm in the uh, marketing space and I'm the head of brand, um, PR and media, uh, as well as our uh, overarching strategy for, for an organization called Avocados for Mexico. And uh, we are we are an organization that exists as an act of Congress, actually. Huh. And uh, believe it or not. So it's a very strange organization. It's, it's different than the type of organization I've worked for in the past, which includes companies like Procter and Gamble, Coca-Cola, Clorox and so on. Right. Um, you know, and uh, we, we are focused on marketing a product uh, from Mexico, but it goes through the United States importers and the United States Department of Agriculture has to check off on everything that we do. So it's a different vibe, man. The whole thing is a different thing. So wait, so they have to check off on everything you do from an advertising perspective as well, or just the products or both? No, no, no. So completely from the advertising standpoint. So they have an organization inside the USDA called the Agricultural Marketing Service. And, And they have a lot of jobs, but one of their main jobs in our case 
uh, is to literally check off on anything that, that we put out there that the public can see. Wow. So, so that is a whole other ball of wax because we've got laws that, that govern our operation, that govern our budget, and so on. And so on. Uh, but we also have regulation that govern how we can advertise. So it's wow. very different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that sounds insanely complicated. The closest thing that you know I've ever done, or at least what comes to mind, I don't even know how close it actually is. What comes to mind, like I've spent time in an alcohol space working yep. uh, at two different wineries, and mm. things are highly regulated. For example, like you need to make sure that you're not advertising towards anyone that's under the age of 21. So a lot of things we would do, we would target people that are 25 and older to just not even right. come close to, you know, pushing up against that regulation. But um, I don't want to get too into the regulatory weeds, but like how how does that make your job? I would assume it makes your job harder. So, A, does it make your job harder? And if so, how does it make your job harder having to deal with those regulations? Okay. Uh, you know, A, not just yes, hell yes. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's start with that. Right. Um, but, but I will say over the years, uh, we've learned how to make that easier. But, but yeah, it, it definitely is an overlay that we would prefer not to have as marketers. Let's be very clear about that. Right. But how it makes it harder, you know, very much uh, uh, very similar to, to what you were thinking about and what you're speaking to on the alcohol side. Uh, I think another very good example of, of sort of regulatory oversight would be the pharma advertising space pharmaceuticals mm, okay um but but where it makes it difficult or most difficult for us is a couple of regulations that again from a marketing particularly a brand marketing and classical marketing standpoint that that those of us uh, uh from the cpg-ish space uh are, are used to you know we're used to thinking about uh the the world or the the industry or our particular uh, uh space of uh, purview of marketing in terms of competition you know, mm -hmm. go, go get market share, beat this guy, uh, right. uh, be better than the next guy. Well, one main thing that we are not allowed to do is, quote unquote, uh, disparage uh, any not only other avocado origin, but any other uh, uh, fresh uh, or uh, uh, any group of uh, products that are under the purview of the United States Department of Agriculture. So huh. give you an ex example, true statement. In fact, I better not say the full. Well, I'll, I'll just say it uh, and, and they'll come find me if they need to. The, the example is, you know, avocados can you can use that to replace butter for many of the things that you use butter for. Hmm. OK, and it's and it's going to be a better substitution because from a health standpoint, uh, because of uh, uh, the properties that include no cholesterol, things like that. Right. But I cannot advertise the fact that you can substitute butter. I have to say things like, um, you know, use this in place of other products that are high in cholesterol, things like that. Right, right, right. right. Uh, yeah. So so uh, there, there's uh, the, the hardest part of the job with them is health claims, anything in mm -hmm. the health, wellness, nutrition claims. But. There have been times we had a Super Bowl ad and, and I've been blessed with with uh, the opportunities because, you know, I've, I'm now on my sixth year of doing Super Bowl ads. Right. Um, I was about to say, I've been I've been flexing like, yeah, yeah I know the dude who will do that. <laughs> I've been flexing every Super Bowl party. For yeah, a while. man. Yeah. Yo, I, <laughs> I appreciate it, man. No, it's 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 definitely all good. You know this as well as anybody. 
you know, people will spend decades in uh, this industry, in this profession, the chance to do uh, something like that, to produce an ad uh, that is that is on the prime time stage of advertising and marketing. Right. And and we've been doing that since we started this company back in 2014. Um, right. And and I've led all of those. Uh, it's it's been really 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 fun. But uh, I, in in year two, we had a guy Scott Bayo, uh, a, a name from back in the day, a mm-hmm. celebrity back in the yep. day, in our ad, and we were making fun of airline seats and uh, the middle seat and airline seats, basically in the ad. And uh, USDA came to us and said, no, you can't do that. You can't, you can't disparage airlines. And I said, well, well, hold on, hold on. You guys, that's, that's uh, uh, DOT, Department of Transportation. That's not USDA. You don't have purview over those guys. Right. So, so it's those types of conversations that you're having all the time. They're good people. They help us out a lot. We're all partners. But in the end, they're the bosses when it comes to what we can do sometimes. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's double click, though, on this, like, six years in running of doing Super Bowl spots. So what was the, the strategy behind yeah. that? And like, how did you get that sold in to do the first one? Cause I remember around the time you guys first broke through, I'm like, yo, this is a big deal. Avocados from Mexico yo. and the Super Bowl. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. And, and the thing about this, this whole, this whole role that makes it far more difficult than your average brand marketing role, man, is that, you're talking about a product in a category that is unbranded, right? Right. Nobody goes to the produce section and thinks about brand. It's not like you're going to the cereal aisle mm-hmm. and you're seeing now to make it even more difficult. The thing is, you don't even have a choice when you go to the store in, in produce in, in most cases. Right. In other words, in our, it, it really depends on the retailer and the importer to decide what they want to stock. So, so the question to get to the Super Bowl point is is a little bit larger than just Super Bowl. It's really about why even advertise in the first place. Right. And 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 so if the consumer doesn't have a choice, what's the point? Well, we believe and most practitioners believe that um you know, you're going to realize greater growth with greater margin and profit and that last part is the key over the long term. Uh, when consumers believe uh, in in the product for more than just its functional purposes, mm-hmm. right? And and so uh, uh, emotional marketing, as it were, connects. And so right. we 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 were coming out of the gate in 2014 with all of these barriers. You know, it's an unbranded category. You know, I th- th- we we've got the word from in our name, so people <laughs> are like, is that a brand? Is that an origin? What are you right. talking about? Right. So. So in the last part of it, to, to get you the logic behind it and the strategy was that, you know, our, we don't have we have great budgets relative to what you see in the produce space. But we from a marketing standpoint, but relative to CPGs and the big boys, you know, alcohol, for example, or et cetera, yeah. we our, our budgets, they spend more on one ad and throw it away than our entire yearly budget. Right. So. So what we said was, well, look, this is a game about attention first. I can do, I can have the greatest ad, I can have the greatest effective message, but if I didn't get your attention first, yep. it, it's all for naught. So we we thought that the best way to to really kick this this organization off and and our efforts uh, uh, was to go to the Super Bowl because that's where the attention is. Uh-huh. You know, they 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 probably 
undercharge for the Super Bowl. Everybody's well well aware of how much those uh, ads cost and the media spots and all that. And the truth is they probably don't charge enough because mm. in the end, you're paying for attention. And you can't give me one other thing that people watch on television mm-hmm. and they say, you know what? Yeah, I'm not really that concerned with the content. Show me the commercials. Right. Right. So so that that's worth a whole lot of weight in gold. And, and so that's really why we went that route. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a brilliant point that you make, though, as a marketer, you know, in terms of the Super Bowl potentially being underpriced, you know, for was it last year? Was it was it five and a half million last year yeah, for a you, spot? It was something in that in that ballpark. Yeah, um, it's the advertised price. You know, yeah. your negotiation can play around with that. But yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but the thing that comes to mind for me is like having the right strategy and a target demographic, you just can't holistically judge you know a super bowl ad and say advertising the super bowl is brilliant or advertising the super bowl is dumb it's like mm-hmm. it all depends right like i remember like a, a brand i actually don't even buy like i, I don't consume i don't play in the category but the mm-hmm. brand buy that they launched a few years ago with justin timberlake i saw that commercial once and it stuck mm-hmm. and now from a hacking attention standpoint, that was a that was brilliant. I went from completely unaware to like yeah. three, four years later, I still can play back the whole commercial. I know their value proposition, I know the brand name, and I don't, and I still I don't I don't consume the product. So mm-hmm. you would say I'm certain that they they've been the brand has been quite successful, and that ad buy was beneficial to their business objectives given how well it was executed. Yeah, you bet. It, you know, we, we went on after that first year to do five more Super Bowls. Right. <laughs> um, and, it, and, it, and it's very interesting because this past year, I had one of those wow moments when uh, the media, I'm doing media interviews and whatnot, and, and you have the reporters and folks at the publications doing their early roundups, who's in the Super Bowl this year. And, and we were included under the phrase of, yeah, some of the regulars are back, like avocados in Mexico. <laughs> like, oh we're, oh, we're Budweiser now? We're Budweiser? Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. Flex. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's all good, man. That's all good. So here's a curiosity. Like, I've never actually talked to, directly to someone who's responsible for making an ad buy in the Super Bowl. Um, mm-hmm. Do do you get like tickets or get invited to the Super Bowl if you're a regular advertiser at the Super Bowl? Yeah, sure. You know, so it's it's pretty simple. It, it usually comes as a pack. Um, th- first of all, your media teams, uh, it, particularly if you have a larger one like we do. Um, uh, I have a guy there, uh, Jeff, who, who who has supplied me. Uh, has been a, a very good friend to me. He supplied yeah. me with University of Michigan tickets. Go blue. University of Texas, yeah. University of Texas tickets. You know the whole thing. Uh, both of my schools. So, uh, 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 and and for the Super Bowl, you do typically get a set number as part of your media buy. Uh, you, it could be four or six i've actually never gone to the game itself because i'm working that day you huh. know because we right we have the um uh the the live digital rooms uh in which we're bantering back and forth with either uh other advertisers on on social media or obviously with the public and so on so uh so we're part of 
of, of that. But, uh, you know, we we've usually given those to either our board members or we might even use them for um, uh, contests or things like that. But, yeah, absolutely. You do get some some tickets from them. that's that's awesome, man. Well, I think, you know, I've been watching the work that you've been doing from a from a distance and been thoroughly impressed uh, with in not just in, in what, you know, you've been doing from a, an advertising standpoint and how you've become a regular the Super Bowls, but it's kind of what you've done with your career because we haven't we haven't crossed paths in person. Gosh, what in a decade? I think it was, it was before uh, I I went off to grad school. Um, so yeah, it's been a been minute. Really impressed. Sure, watching watch your LinkedIn profile update over time. Like, okay, I see you rather <laughs> doing your thing. Oh man, it's all love, and I miss seeing you too. So we definitely got to get up, man. But but uh, yeah, it's it's. You know, we just got to keep grinding, man, particularly as African-Americans. I was literally before we we got together on this uh, uh, conversation, I was just reading that P&G uh, put out their diversity stats. And again, I, I started my career with P&G. My first six years of post undergrad was at P&G. Yeah. And uh, um, and they just talked about how um, they're making progress. But of course, the group that they've made the least progress with is African mm-hmm. descent people. Right? Yep. Of course, yeah. after all this time and, and 20 years ago, when I started with them, I started with them in January, 2000, um, uh, you know, diversity back then was, was, you know, they, they had some level of commitment. I, I will give them full on credit. They, they did things. Uh, they tried to foster an environment back then. So 20 years later to say that you're still having issues it, it's it's uh, there, there's some inherent uh, 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 barriers here that that sort of personal drive um, mm-hmm. it, it is going to have to try to overcome. And, and that's certainly what my story, I think, has been about for sure. Yeah, well, I can't wait to get into the details of it. And I just quickly will add that I think there are two variables that go to um, this diversity issue in particular as it pertains to black people. So people act as if it's an either or, like, is it our recruiting practices, like getting people into the funnel or is it the funnel itself? And a lot of people want to get off of looking at the funnel because that's organizational culture, that's systemic racism, that's unconscious bias. And those things are really hard to unpack and they, they require a concerted effort and it's not, it's not easy. It's doable. It requires a, a, like a, a, a serious will to address. And then there's the like, oh, recruiting. Well, we just can't find the people to get into the funnel. Where it's like, well, there's both are the issue. And on one side, getting people into the funnel, they exist, but you have to want to go find them. You bet. Like, like you, you can't bet. do just-in-time hiring and then expect to get, you know, top African-American talent. Mm-hmm. But But mm-hmm. they're out there. Like, they're... There are plenty of schools that bring them in. You and I both went to the University of Michigan for a specific reason because it's a, it's a place that's known for producing elite African-American talent. But yeah. I'm not going to pretend like we're the only school that does it. There are plenty sure. of MBAs that produces a lot of amazing African-American talent. Um, mm-hmm. But then another piece, the ugly piece, is you know, when, you, when you get into the actual funnel and this unconscious bias and people getting weeded out and um, having things... Uh, made more difficult in terms of career progression, but always in the gray. It's not about objective performance. It's around stuff around the periphery that just kind of feels like, I don't know. It's a lot of soft feel words, think words as opposed to measurables. Um, 
Yeah. And so then you look up, and this is not against PNG. I've actually never worked at PNG. I would actually assume from what I've read and what I've heard that they're ahead of the game, even though they're not where they should be, but yeah. they're ahead of most companies. Um, I, w- I would say that. I would say that. Um, uh, I, I still look back upon my years at that company very, very uh, fondly. Um, I think it set me up uh, just in terms of it, it's it's almost very much like it's B school in and of itself uh, going mm-hmm. to P&G at 22 years old. Um, yeah. it, because it, at, similar to business school, you know, the primary thing it does, it gives you a framework for how to think about breaking down problems and solving them. And, um, and it's, 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 it's like going uh, and being a football player at the Patriots, you know, you, you just have to elevate your game in order to be there. Absolutely. Um, so, so I, I give them a lot of credit. And like I said, uh, 20 years ago, uh, for sure, they absolutely uh, were interested in diversity. I could spend time calling out specific things that they did back then for me um, uh, uh, to try to keep me engaged, interested, um, happy, the whole thing. Uh, what, what, I, what I see, uh, and so I would, I would wrap that by saying absolutely, based on my experience at several companies now, blue chips or not, uh, they absolutely are ahead of the game. The issue here is that... Um, you know, it, it's it's it, it, think of it like this. It's kind of like uh, the best house in a bad neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, that yep. that's kind of the issue, right? You right. Need, and, and what do they always tell you in real estate? As as a home buyer, never buy the house, buy the neighborhood, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Right. That's real. So, you know what I mean? So 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 that's the that's the issue. P and G. I'm sure I, I'm convinced that they are committed and they're doing what they can. Uh, uh, but but everybody collectively all the houses in the neighborhood need to upgrade their house if everybody does that the neighborhood will be better and of higher value and that that that's what needs to happen uh and stop doing a lot of what we're seeing out there which is this face value stuff man mm-hmm. you know uh, you know low level lower level entry level to mid level yeah your numbers will look fine of course as you start getting up that pyramid that's where uh, things start to get uh, a little bit filtered out, uh, filtered out among other things. So um, there's a there's a lot of opportunity um, that that uh, hopefully uh, folks are kind of resetting. Because I'll tell you, you know, uh, and I work for an, you know an organization. We are we are a Dallas uh, based American incorporated organization that markets a Mexican product. We have Mexicans on our board, Mexican nationals. We have Americans on our board and we have the United uh, representative for the United States Department of Agriculture on our board. Um, you know, but uh, uh, so, so all of that is to say, I love Latinos. <laughs> okay. Right. We're good. Right. We're good. But, but I, when I started at PNG, I remember we were, we were, things were transitioning from a focus on, sort of African-Americans to a focus on Hispanics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so early 2000s, you know, a lot of the lot of the language about, you know, how they'll be overtaking African-Americans in terms of population and uh, potential purchasing power, all those things. Uh, it, it, and so I think some of the over the last couple of decades, it's I don't have any data on this, but I, I wonder if some of the um, eye was taken off the ball a little bit, man. And yeah. And, and I wonder and or hope that maybe some focus will come back because it's not an either or it's not us versus other minority groups. Absolutely. It's collective. You know what I mean? It's collectively looking at this thing and saying, hey, what's the right thing to do? Uh, recognizing that 
you know, there, there are inherent uh, 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 barriers that have been pulled forward from decades and even centuries of, of discrimination that prevent people from being successful and realizing their true successful selves. Yeah. And I, you know, what it, what it boils down to from, from my lived experience being in a game at a few different companies at this point is I, I don't think that there's a, there's a willpower, you know, I think that there's a, we would like to have diverse consumers, but there's not the willpower to go ahead and do the things that uh, is required to actually earn those diverse consumers, which yeah. includes is actually having diverse populations work at your company, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and have those, those insights and that understanding. There's this, there's this old model to where multicultural marketing was a special project. Like our marketing is like, we can talk to middle of America, white people, and then we'll do something for black history month. We'll do something for Cinco de Mayo. If you know, there are people who question like, is Cinco de Mayo really a Mexican holiday? That whole thing. But it's like Cinco de Mayo, we'll do something. And, you know, maybe, I'm trying to think when pride started to become really big in yeah. multicultural marketing. You can mm-hmm. throw, throw pride in there. But net, like you talk to middle of America white people, then you have these special projects here and there. Now everything is all mixed together in this younger demographic. And there's this schism that starts with millennials. Like between the, from Xers to millennials, the world is just seen different. And then from millennials to Zs, it's even more different. Like they're, they're their own they have their own worldview that is very much so rooted in equity and justice and multiculturalism at its core, not mm-hmm. as a special side project. So I think the people who are in big chairs are Xers and boomers, and they're from a very different world, a very different lived experience, very different media habits. They still by and large consume media and the old media habits, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they don't feel the pressure and they don't see the tidal wave that is coming, you know, uh, where there's going to be, there's going to be some serious pain, I think for companies who don't figure out DNI internally, which therefore yeah. is going to have a adverse impact on their go to market approach. Right. And the way in which they show up in communities, the events they choose to sponsor, the marketing that they do, the products that they launch, all of that is going to be tone deaf and out of touch with consumers. I, th- I agree. I agree. I, I, it's going to be echoing your point. There's going to be a time, you know, pretty soon, I think, um, again, echoing what you're saying that that, um, you know, you you you've seen certain companies make the same mistake over and over again in advertising. Gucci is one name that comes to mind mm-hmm. a lot. You know, I told my wife, it was like, we are never buying anything mm-hmm. from those guys, right. you know, because uh, uh, they keep making mistakes. Right. Uh, you know, United Colors of Benetton, you know, right. the, the, these guys keep making these mistakes and there's going to be a time where they w- just won't be able to come back from it. Right. Um, you know, because these guys, these, these Gen Zers, man, they, 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 the, the minute they came out of a womb, they had a phone with Instagram <laughs> on it. You right, know what I mean? Right, with right. TikTok and all and whatnot. TikTok, so that's for the next guys, I guess, Gen AA or whatever. But, right. but at the end of the day, man, uh, that, that is absolutely uh, something I, I agree with. And I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, just like with any other, um, you know, 
business environmental um, issue that companies need to deal with and need to adapt or die, this is going to be an adapt or die situation. Yep. Absolutely. And it's coming sooner rather than later. So, yes, sir. you know, um, but that said, let's, let's pivot for a second. So I'm going to do a really quick recap. Um, so you have two extremely prestigious degrees. You didn't say that. I said that. And I'm comfortable saying it, <laughs> right? Like, let me, let, me, let me brag for you a little bit. Like, so you went to UT Austin for undergrad. You went to University of Michigan for your MBA. You've worked right. at several blue chip companies, including the blue is a blue chip as it pertains to marketing, like Procter & Gamble invented brand marketing, you know, they're, they're widely considered the best place to go learn to craft a brand in the world. So you, you work there, you end up coming to Clorox, which is where I actually grew up in brand. And right. if you were to ask me, I personally think Clorox is the best place, but no, no need for set tripping. You know, like, <laughs> if, you know, as far as you're concerned, you cover both sides. You did Procter & Gamble yeah. and you did Clorox. And then you went on, you worked at a few other companies, and then you land Avocado Mexico, you are now a regular Super Bowl advertiser, which is the, the Super Bowl of advertising is actually advertising and or Super Bowl of marketing Bowl. is marketing Indeed. at the Super Bowl. And so here you are, you know, one of the pillars of that. By every measure, Indeed. a wildly successful marketer and business executive, people could hope and dream to be sitting in your shoes. And I think that oftentimes it's just the way in which I'm wired. I don't look at the successful person and get enamored by their success and the trappings of their success. I want to understand how they got there because the work that, you know, went into you becoming you didn't happen two years ago or even 10 years ago. Like it started in your childhood. There was something special and everyone, there's not one formula, but there is, uh, there are patterns that start to emerge. So I like to go back and ask people and just understand like where they're from, how they grew up. So I'm going to ask you, these same things and take the conversation there now. Like, where are you from and where did you grow up? Yeah, man, I, I grew up in a, uh, from, from zero to 14, I, I grew up in a small town about an hour northeast of Dallas, Texas, called Commerce, Texas. Um, so uh, uh, shout out to the Merce, uh, ETSU, <laughs> East Texas State University for the old school folks. It's now uh, Texas A&M Commerce. Okay. Uh, out there, but it, it's small town. Uh, back then, it was eight thousand people. It's probably half that now. Wow. Um, you know, and it it it's it, you know it it was a, a situation. Man, I had on on my block, I had uh, two aunts, my grandmother, uh, I think a second cousin. Uh, you wow. pretty much can everybody when you're from uh, East right. Texas country. Right. At the end of the day, um, and uh, yeah, from from there. Um, uh, I went on to, uh, we moved to, uh, uh, a town outside of Dallas on the North side, um, uh, called Denton, Texas is where, uh, home of the university of North Texas Eagles green, uh, mean green. Okay. Uh, and also, uh, I believe the largest woman's university is there, Texas women's university, uh, in that town. It's probably about 35 miles North of Dallas. Okay. Um, and so, uh, finished high school out of there, man. Uh, you know, in terms of, in terms of how I grew up, I mean, it was it wasn't easy, man. It wasn't easy. I think a lot of people that don't know my background, I think they make, you know, certain assumptions. So this guy, you know, okay, he probably comes from, you know, two parents graduated college. They're probably right, professors right. or something. It, it was nothing like that, man. It was nothing like that. We we I, I went from 
we, we from okay to pretty poor uh, as a right. child. We we moved to Denton my uh, second half of my uh, freshman year in high school. So I had about three and a half years of high school left when we went to Denton, Texas. And in that three and a half years, I lived in five different places. Wow. Uh, yeah, three apartments, one rental home and a mobile home. Mm. Um, and what's funny about it is, and you talk about, you know, the, 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 thing it, the thing it takes to get from A to B, you, you know, you, you got to have a little grind in you. And sometimes you don't know you have it. You're just doing what it takes to survive. You know, I, I didn't realize that stat that I just gave you. I, I didn't realize that until I took my wife back hmm. several years ago. Right, and right, I was, right. You know how you take a bag, you're like, okay, yeah. I used to live here, blah, blah, blah. And then I realized I'm saying I used to live here a few, few too many times. Right, right, right. Right? And, uh, uh, and I, I said, hold on, man. Let me count this up. And, well, and yeah. Well, let, yeah, let me, let me double click there, too. Because for one, like, yeah, like grind and like an ability to focus, it's like grinding towards something is the prerequisite for anyone to be successful. And I think that just because you grow up poor, you don't necessarily have grind. Just because you grow up rich, you don't necessarily not have it. I do sure. think disproportionately, black folks and poor folks, we have more grind than the average person. So if we can find a way to harness it and use it to our benefit, you know, we can, we can change our outcome. But I would love to understand, you know, if you've lived in five places in three and a half years, none of which sounds like they were, you know, ritzy, kind of super plush places to live, right. what kept you... What kept you anchored through that process and, and allowed you to go from there in that reality to one of the best undergrad institutions in the country? Well, there are several things I would state. And I mean, the first is, uh, you know, there, there's some amount of, of uh, talent that God blessed me with. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, I don't know why. But one of those things that I always tell people is that um, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm fairly smart, but I know guys that are smarter than me. You're mm -hmm. one of them, right? I mean, I there, there are a lot that, of guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but one, you know, one thing that I, I do extremely well is I make extraordinarily uh, well thought out decisions. Mm. I've always done that even as a kid. So with the exception of a few faux pas that I made as, as a child, that any kid is going to make, particularly not having the level of parental oversight that you need to have as a kid. Cause my mom was grinding working nights and uh -huh. then my dad was sort of in and out, not really there. Sometimes he was, sometimes he wasn't. So, so uh, uh, you know, getting through all of that, a lot of that was just decision-making because, you know, I looked at the situation and, you know, I, I, I have friends of all different colors and, you know, I would go to their house. I, I come to find out later that, you know, I was ashamed of where I lived. So later on down the line, they tell me that, man, we thought you were homeless. We were trying to find your house, couldn't find it. Mm. You know, and I was like, yeah, man, I was hiding out. You know what I mean? But I look at I look at these guys and I see how they're living versus how I'm living. Mm -hmm. And it became very clear to me that, look, this is what it's all about. OK, it, not what's going on with me right now. So so. I figured that, well, the easiest way to make that happen is to get, put yourself in a situation in which you're not living check to check. 
Mm. And so for all those out there that might be listening, that's never lived check to check, it is not fun. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of folks are going through, frankly, right now uh, with, you know, job issues and the pandemic. But, you know, I, I, I said, OK, well, look, there's one way to get that uh, to, to get to go that route, legal or illegal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> OK. And so I just said, well, the, the, kind of like the rappers say, well, the legal money lasts longer than the drug money. <laughs> so, right, right. So, that's I, real. So, so I just said, hey, well, that's the route to go. Now, what what uh, ended up happening to really expand what I thought were my opportunities was athletics. So uh, when I moved to Denton, uh, I, I uh, shout out to Nolan Johnson, a good, good friend of mine from, from the old place, from Commerce. He told me, well, this is what I do to run hurdles. You know, I was a hurdler, but I wasn't very good. I talked to him. He said, now nah, you got a three-step in between. Hmm. I said, okay, well, let me try that. So I tried that, and I broke the school record the next week. Oh, wow. And so, and from there, it went on. And then suddenly, I'm getting letters from Stanford. I'm getting letters from, you know, Washington, from West Point, from, from everyone to come run track there. And then it became a thing where it's like, wow, I might actually be able to go to college, man. This is good. Right, right. And so, right. Um, uh, uh, and so uh, that, that's kind of how the 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 world opened up or the world of opportunity opened up when you don't have parents that are that are uh putting you on game like that you know the guys that have it they know now that it's a blessing but i didn't have that you know i when i went to university of texas i moved myself you know you know when you check in you remember undergrad that first day you got all the parents that are there with the kids and the figure that was all me i didn't have parents do that it was me uh so yeah, it, 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 uh, uh, all of that kind of went into play, man, in terms of trying to figure out how I can get from A to B. Right. When, when did you let's, let's go back a little bit before we get to UT Austin? Because what I'm hearing is talent for sure. But then there's this work ethic and there's this grind because you don't just get letters from Stanford if you wasn't handling your business in the classroom. So you actually right. were delivering and getting that, getting that work done. But then there's a there's a confidence to go beyond what's known and what's comfortable, right? For you to be able to like do what you did through high school, for you to be able to then get up and go move yourself into university of Texas, solo dolo by yourself. Cause I, I know what that feeling is like when you're in situations and it's like, Oh, your parents should be there with you and they're not mm-hmm. right. So, the confidence to be able to do that didn't likely didn't come about that day. So like, what, what was it that helped you forge your, for me, it was athletic competition. Like me achieving like week after week, practice after practice, game after game from a little kid all the way through high school, just each, each little, like in small increments, I just became more and more confident and sure who I sure of who I am. So for me, that's what it was. But I'm curious to know, what was it for you to, that built that confidence in you to allow you to become who you are? You know, um, yeah, I talked about my, my father. You know, the, the, like I said, he, he was in and out, uh, particularly the latter half of my childhood. Uh, uh, but in the first half of it, you know, he was a little more present. And, um, and 
and he did have some positive impacts. Uh, he had some negative ones too, but he had some positive impacts uh, in in instilling a sort of uh, um, no excuses type of mentality. Mm. Um, you know, he always used to say a phrase, "Yo, it bees that way sometimes." That's right. what it is. You know. Um, uh, now again, you know, uh, you don't you don't want to grow up and be like my dad. He he was not a he was not a role model. But everybody has some positive somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough to get at least a little bit of that. Um, I, I would say that absolutely the, the athletic competition, uh, I, would, I would absolutely encourage, you know, all kids to participate in some sort of athletic competition. Um, something. Yep. Yep. Connect four if you have to. Something. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, you know, and, and when I started seeing, you know, I still have – you go back to Denton Ryan High School, you're going to see all the records up there are in the 21st century except for one, mine. It's still there. <laughs> Flash. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, yeah. and, but the, and the point is what that does is that, that, that builds confidence in and of itself, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so then that, then that confidence can be applied in different areas. Uh, I started realizing that, you know, particularly growing up in a college town, again, I'm having to work all the time. You know, I'm I'm working, going to school, trying to trying to make it happen at 15, 16 years old. And in doing these jobs, I'm interfacing with adults and I'm noticing that these people listen to me, yeah. uh, you know. And so uh, so you figure out that you do have a voice. Um, and, uh, and, and that takes that confidence level even higher. Uh, so, so when you put all those things together and just saying, look, um, you're either going to sink or swim and I, and I'm not a sinker, so go swim. And, and that's, that's really just kind of what it came down to. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I think it's in, it's important to, uh, make it to the other side, obviously. Right. Because you know the, the opposite of, of swimming is is drowning, um, and I often often tell people, like I would not want, I would not intentionally have kids raised in the environment like where I grew up in the environment that you're describing because of how you grew up. Like that's not ideal, but there is a benefit that actually comes with that, and I, I and I see a direct correlation to the performance that you have in your career now it's like when you're when you're forged in fire like that and you have to sink or swim in these really choppy waters at a really young age and you make it through to the other side you are that much better for it it is not ideal it is not you you wouldn't wish that on somebody you wouldn't choose that for yourself but since that's what you were given it's kind of like you're given lemons you turn into lemonade or or you're given scraps of scraps of the hog to keep going to southern reference and you, you you come up with hog maws and pig feet, you know, but you get to the other side, you are a much better person, leader, now executive than other people who are sitting in, who consider themselves to be your peers. Yeah. Like being able to navigate and manage and lead through crisis. There, there are not many people, like you, you, you're not going to be adept at leading through crisis unless you've been through crisis. Like you can't stay calm under pressure if you haven't been put under pressure, but you've been navigating pressure since, you know, you were a kid. And so being able to lead any organization um, and any business 
through all the uncertainty of present day, you know, economics, given all of what's going on from climate change to a global pandemic to a, a more polarized political climate than ever before and all the other things that come along with our current economy. Yeah. I think no, you're, I, you're quite prepared to lead. And, and that was the path that the good Lord wanted for me. And, and I agree with you that uh, it is not, not ideal. I would not describe it as ideal by any stretch. Right. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, uh, and yeah, you know, going through all these things that I'm talking about, I didn't have a safety net, you know, mm -hmm. I, I didn't have, if I didn't make it, I was going to drown. There wasn't going to be using the sink or swim, you know, analogy that I, I, that was it. There wasn't going to be the coast guard to pull me out. Right. You know, so, so I had to, it just really wasn't a choice. Uh, uh, and so, uh, uh, and so that's, that's, that's really, you know, that's really what it is, man. And, and, uh, you know, the, the, I think the moral of the story, you know, for, you know, for, for a lot of folks, I tell them, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how many folks are familiar with blackjack as a game, um, you know, card game, mm -hmm. but, but, you know, you get a set of cards and the dealer gets a set of cards and the idea is to get to end up with better cards than the dealer does. And, you know, the truth is uh, if you're sitting at a table playing this game, you know, life is a lot like that. This guy right next to you on the right, he's going to get a set of cards that start out better than your set of cards versus the dealer. Right. And in the end, you both have the same goal to beat the dealer, but you're starting out in different places. Yep. And the point is you can both still win some. It's going to be a little more of a grind than others, you know, but you can both still beat the dealer. You just have to have focus uh, uh, to, to do so. I mean, again, uh, uh, in, in, the in the parlance of, of blackjack, you know, it's more than certainly focused, need a luck. And that you could argue that that's the same in, in life as well. Right. But, but, but certainly that's the thing. You cannot dwell on the cards you started with in life. Uh -huh. You have to, you have to dwell on the cards you're going to end up with. Absolutely. And, and that's what it's all about. Yeah. I always use the metaphor that if you're trying to achieve X, so let's just say you're trying to graduate from UT Austin with a bachelor's degree. And let's say in this game of life, that's reaching step 30. Mm -hmm. There are some people that are born cards that are dealt. They're born at step 20. You bet. Mm -hmm. And there's someone like you that was born at step zero. Mm -hmm. And now you can sit there and cry over spilled milk, or you can get to stepping, right? There it is. And just like, look, this is unfair, and I'm aware of this, and when I make it, I'm going to do things to try and make it easier for other people in the next generation. So even if they're born at step zero, I can help get them up to step 10, step 15, whatever, try and even the playing field, ideally get everyone to step 20. But I know for my unique situation, these, these are the cards that I was dealt. Mm -hmm. And I am at step zero with no safety net. And so then, therefore, I have a choice. It is unfair. It is unjust. And I may not make it, but I'm either going to get the step in or I'm going to sit here and wallow at step zero. And you got the step in and you, you clearly made it and went so far beyond, you know, to, to do 
more things. So let's 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 talk a little bit about your time while you're at Texas. So you make this bold move and you attend University of Texas. What was it about Texas? Was it like staying close to home? Because it seemed like you had, you could have gone to a few different places. If Stanford was knocking on your door, West Point, University of Washington, different places was knocking on your door. What kept you at home? And, and uh, why did you go to Texas? Man, you know, uh, it's an interesting answer there that has a few different aspects to it, a few different facets to it. Um, you know, the first starts with the following. Um, it, it really relates to what everything we were talking about. I didn't have involved or not, and or knowledgeable parents. Hmm. So as a 17-year-old, I, I, you know, and I, I didn't have counselors. I really wasn't that involved with the counselors at school. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have anybody put me up on game. I literally did not know at the time that Stanford was such a high-end institution. Mm. I had no idea. I, all I knew was that they were, you know, a school far away that costs a lot of money if something happens and I'm either not good at or cannot run track. Mm-hmm. So so, so I was like, yep, can't go there. I remember ripping up the, the recruiting letter and just throwing it away, mm. you know. Um, mm. so, so things like that happen to people that don't have guidance, right? you know, and it is what it is, but that, that's, that's one, one piece. I did do several recruiting trips, uh, you know, to different universities all over the, uh, all over the country. One of those was, uh, Columbia. Um, you know, again, uh, I was really focused on, on the academic side first. Um, and, uh, but, but when it came down to it, what happened, man, was uh, there's a track meet uh, at the University of Texas called Texas Relays. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, anyone that's familiar with uh, track and field probably has heard of that. It's a big deal um, in, in the track and field space. It's one of the bigger meets all year. And that has a high school division and a college division and several different divisions within college. And in high school, I went down and I won that thing uh, as a junior and a senior and coming mm. off the track as a senior for the 110 hurdles, that is. And uh, coming off the track, uh, I didn't get recruited actually by UT. They had already had uh, three underclassmen hurdlers. And uh, coming off the track, uh, the assistant coach, you know, he says, uh, hey, so I hear you're interested in UT. And I, was, I said, well, <laughs> I said, yes, sir. But I know you guys have, uh, you know, your slots already set for hurdlers. He said, so how are your grades? And I said, well, I'm already admitted into the business school with a business school scholarship. He said, I'll be at your house next weekend. Huh. And, and uh, so that's so. So one of the main reasons I ended up there, uh, frankly, was uh, uh, they have the brand in the in the in the state. So obviously I was a fan. But but great school. And the main thing for me was that in the end, I did not want to go on a athletic scholarship Mm. because I didn't want to be beholden Mm. to athletics for my education. Mm -hmm. So I had that business school scholarship there already. I said, well, let's just go here. That way, if anything happens or I'm not for some reason, I'm not as good as I want to be or should be. I I can still go to school. So yes. That was it, man. That was it. That's how I ended up there. That's awesome. It's brilliant. And that's actually, I think, you know, I know there's some, there is some serendipity or you start luck, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mostly hard work, but some luck in that, um, you know, you said you didn't have a lot of like 
guidance and a lot of people helping you make the decision. You were making the decision on your own. But there was some fundamental truth that you understood at 17 about leverage mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and not being beholden or having putting yourself in a situation where you're beholden and all your eggs are in one basket because whoever controls that basket that you're putting all your eggs in, they have a lot of leverage over you. Now, they may or may not choose to exercise that leverage, but they have it. And, so, and that leverage was alleviated when you got your academic scholarship. To go you better to the believe it. College of Business, which is you better amazing. believe it. Yeah. yeah, and that and I saw teammates in which the coaches exercise their leverage on. They tried that on me, and I was like, "Nah, that's not really gonna work, cuz." You know what I mean? That's not <laughs> right. really gonna work. And right. uh, uh, and and it's funny you mention that because I, I tell you, man, that's how I live my life it, 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 in a lot of ways. I I recognize the value of leverage. And and for anyone that is looking to work for someone else, work for an employer, you need to set yourself up and and uh, create a space in which you have the most leverage uh, possible in order to execute your career the way that uh, that you want to. Um, and yeah. and so I saw that at school as well, man. And so um, uh, that so so that's exactly right. That's what it was about. I didn't want the athletic department having leverage over my future yeah no that's uh insightful to see it that young and uh like kudos to you like bravo that you were able to then go and execute accordingly and be able to put yourself in the situation you put yourself into so to to close the chapter on the ut experience what was it like for you in undergrad like what was um like the most beneficial thing you learned either about the world or about yourself, you know, during your time at UT Austin? Uh, you know, the, I, I will tell you this to answer that question. Um, the most valuable thing I got, I don't know if I've ever, ever answered this question, but I have a very fast answer to it. Um, the most valuable thing I got out of UT was the first semester I was there. Mm. I didn't I didn't know anything about being a college student. I didn't have someone coaching me on, okay, look, when you get to college, man, high school was easy. You didn't have to study. I didn't even know what studying really literally was. I I didn't Mm. know that it meant you go to a library and you lock in for six hours, eight hours, and Mm. you try to teach yourself something. Yeah, I I didn't really even know that. So that first semester, all I did was go to class. I I did what I thought was homework. I did what I thought was testing. Uh, but I went to practice and I party. That first semester, I got a 1.6 GPA. Mm. A 1.6. And I got a letter from two places. From the NCAA, who said, you will not be eligible if you don't get your act together. And I got a letter from the business school, who said, you're going to lose your scholarship if you don't get your act together. Mm. And that was the most valuable lesson I got at the University of Texas. It's mm. that this world don't care about you. Right. <laughs> it, they, it, it doesn't. Right. So, so just because you think you're cool, you're Mr. Athlete, you know, you, you know, you're, you're 18 and you're not, you're not uh, uh, as heavy as you are at 43, uh, right. you know, <laughs> yeah, you get to run a hurdle, you know, you, you know, you, you're not, you're not special. Yep. And, and you have to earn what you get. And, um, and, and, and so I, I was able to get my act together from an early lesson uh, quickly at UT. 
um it was an awesome school awesome experience uh being it be, being in the business school was fantastic i still have relationships not only with uh classmates but with professors uh from there at mm. that time uh so uh great great place uh i consider it a blessing and i appreciate everything that not only the business school not only the uh athletic department certainly uh but also just generally the student body did for me there that's that's awesome you know and what i what i hear in that story is one is the ability to learn right and I think what's required to have the ability to learn is to not have a victim's mentality. Like, and it's, it's an interesting balance. I think some people throw that around, especially as it, when it pertains to black folks, that, that we cry victim or play the race card, which I'm not talking about that, right? Like we, there are definitely, there are, there are injustices that are heaped upon us in large portions that we do not want and do not deserve. I am not talking about that in terms of playing the victim. I'm talking about regardless of your race, when you actually err in life and you get your consequence, there are some people who woe is me. They think the whole world needs to bend to understand their unique situation and to justify the thing that they objectively did wrong. Like, Earning a 1.6 GPA in your first semester is not justifiable when you're there running track and you're on a scholarship getting to go to school for free. I think that that's a relatively objective response. But instead of, you know, being woe is me when you, when you got those letters like, yo, shape up, right? And the world is letting you know, like, they actually don't really care about you uniquely. You didn't fall into like this downtrodden victim mode. You just say, all right, let me buck up and handle my business. Right. And I'm, I'm aware that the world doesn't care about me, but this is also what I care about, what I want to get. So I'm going to do these things to get what I want out of this situation. And I find that to be pretty impressive, you know, cause there, I think there, it goes back to grit. I think there are certain people, whether it's through nature or nurture, they, they arrive in this place of, Again, I might be dealt these particular cards, but I'm going to make these cards work for me the best I the best I can. And mm -hmm. were you were you always that way, or was it when you experienced that particular situation in your first semester at the end of your first semester that that like personality trait kicked in for you? Well, um, you know, I, I I had I had always had a at least as a, from the teenage years on out when things got a little home, harder on the home front, um, I, I always had a make it happen mentality. So, you know, whether it's working at Taco Bueno at 16 years old till 4.30 a.m. and having the manager drop me off at home because my mom works works nights and mm -hmm. nobody can get me home unless I'm walking. Right. Uh, those types of things or or you know, borrowing friends' cars at 16, getting around to get to wherever I needed to go, or, uh, uh, you know, again, trying to figure out, again, getting all, figuring out how to get into college. Right. Um, you know, that's, you know, all these things. So, it, so some of that, some of that was just uh, kind of the mentality that you kind of have to have. And I think it goes back a lot of what you're talking about from an athletic standpoint, 
you, you know, you just have to decide you're not going to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to decide as well or have to be cognizant of very similar to, you know, the sports analogy that that um, th- there there are different periods, different quarters, different halves to to everything you're doing. And, and uh, you know, you might get a setback. The other team may score. The game's not over. Right. And, you know what I mean? It's not over. It's, you know, so get out there and grind and go get that score back. And so that it's just um, it's just part of the deal that that uh, was the case. I think the thing that that situation at, at UT really slapped me in the face uh, with was uh, you're probably going to have to grind harder at everything you're doing here than you ever have before academically and athletically the fact is athletically i i had no coaching everything was all talent in Mm -hmm. high school okay um and 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 everything just came very easy and same thing academically in high school but then that flipped when i got to ut everything got a lot harder Mm -hmm. and uh and that really slapped me in the face with that um uh and so that's where the value of that situation came in because I learned it early and that allowed me to really adjust my approach to my college experience and really maximize my skill set and my opportunities for what was in front of me. That's, that's awesome. And I think the, the, the learning, having that kick in like what hard work actually looks like and is, is a pretty special moment. So for me, it happened when I was actually at the Clorox company because mm. everywhere else I'd been in life up until that point, when I walked in the room, I was pretty much one of the most talented people. Mm-hmm. And so I could get by with talent and an average amount of hard work. Clorox was, and then, and, and, and interestingly enough, because I didn't play college athletics because I wasn't gifted enough to be at least not a D1 athlete. I was a D2, D3 athlete. So I chose to just focus on academics and the undergraduate program I went to, again, I was in a situation where when I walked in the room, I was one of the most talented students in the classroom. So Mm -hmm. I still got away with just being naturally more gifted than people. When I got to Clorox, that was the first time I walked in a room where everybody was the man or woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I had a really rigorous product or project that I had to lead. It was a quantitative historical pricing analysis with a recommendation going forward for one of the biggest brands at the company. And I was like, damn. And I worked my ass off. But on the back end of it, I then understood what hard work looked like. Thankfully, I crushed it. Project actually went well. It actually turned, you know, it it set my brand at Clorox. Like, oh, yeah, he's one of us. He's meant to be here. As opposed mm-hmm. to just being like, yeah, who's the black guy? You know, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, no, 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 <laughs> no he's, he's, he's meant to be or he has something. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I was then able to operate at that frequency. That became my, my new PR. Like, I'm, I'm a Peloton guy now, right? So uh, uh-huh. the, the, the pandemic turned me into a Peloton guy. And every time nice. I hit a PR, that then becomes my floor, right? Uh-huh. And then the next ride, I need to do at least that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and at Clark's, that's when, and working on this particular pricing project, that's when I came to understand what hard work was. And so then the next time I had to work on something that complicated, I had to deliver the same output, but it, it, it took 90% as much energy. 
and eventually 85% and 80 and it, and it came down and now that's just the frequency in which I operate at. Uh-huh. But that's when I learned what hard work was. What I thought was hard work before was not it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, you know, guys like you, I mean, you know, you know, it's about the grind, you know, you just have to sometimes be put in a situation in which maybe you have to figure out a different aspect of the grind, you know, yeah. and, 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 and really reach that different that different gear. Uh, and so uh, that's what happened with you at Clorox. And, you know, that's, that's how you get that, that status over there. So yeah, absolutely, man. I, I, I hear exactly what you're saying. And, 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 and again, I, I, mentality is nine tenths of the law, man. <laughs> Not, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, men, men, mentality can get you over, you know, I, I'll tell you a really quick story. Um, remember I said that with UT, it, you know, it, I, I was running track because I could, but not, yeah, I was focused on academics first. Right. And I, my best friend, man, I, I just, the kid I, I met when I moved to Denton and, and he's still my best friend to this day. He ended up, I convinced him to go to UT in, instead of SMU. He ended right. up walking on to the basketball team there. And I remember this to this day, man, this guy, he, he, he told me, maybe it was my freshman or sophomore year. He said, let me tell you something. You have no excuse, none to not be all America. Huh. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, man, that's hard to do. That means you're top eight in your event in the country. Right. I was like, that's hard to do. He's like, you have no excuse, none. And so I said, you know what? You're right. I don't. And I ended up being All-America my senior year. <laughs> Congrats, uh, you man. Know. That's huge. But yeah, man. And, and I, I appreciate it. And it's really, again, it's, it's huge because you can, you've got something you can tell these kids. You know, you go back to that locker room. My name's on that wall. And it's 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 not because I'm special. It's just because I believed I could do it, and I said I'm gonna go do it. And, and then you did uh, it. Yeah, man. And and so it's it's really this whole thing. So much could be con- you know what they talk about with with uh, physical ailments, how the mind can overcome so much. It, it, the 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 mind is is very powerful, man. And if oh. people are willing to harness that for their benefit. Uh, they'll, they'll be surprised for, you know, what, what they can do and where it can take them. That's, that's awesome, man. And I'm one, I completely agree with it. And I'm just like, you know, having known you for a while, I'm still like, wow, getting more of your story that I didn't know. I'm like super inspired right now by this conversation. And I can't wait to get it out to the world so people can hear it. And be, before I let you get out of here, you know, there, there are four questions that, um, I have all my guests answer to try and help, you know, other black men who are young in their career or anyone who's a parent of a young black boy that's trying to help them kind of while you're raising them and getting them prepared for adulthood and kind of what this world is, has waiting for them, you know, try and and try and um, extract these, these gems of wisdom from people who've done it, not people who are talking about doing it, but who've actually walked the walk and have delivered um, to try and help other black people figure their way out through this maze called life here in America. So That's question. Beautiful man, for sure. So the first question I have is, um, I would assume that where you grew up, you know, it was normal, you know, to uh, get into a physical altercation if you were really upset about something. And I think that's one of the things that holds us back. People who come from that environment, as we try and navigate outside of that environment, that that is not appropriate behavior. So the question I have, because I think it's important for us to 
always be in control of our temper. Not to yeah. always, not to never get upset, but to be in control of your temper. And so that said, can you tell me a time in which somebody went low and you took the high road and it turned out to be for, to your best interest? You know, man, uh, I'll tell you something. I talked about Procter Gamble, talked about my experience there. And again, it was very much largely uh, positive. But I'll, I'll tell you something that happened that wasn't. You know, I was about 24 years old. I was working out in the um, in the field and the sales. So they, they would have these sales teams and the sales teams would have multifunctional talent on there. So, you know, the sales team would have salespeople, but it would also have marketing people, research people, product supply people and so on. And I was I was part of this kind of analy cross between analytics, IT and market research for these guys uh, for one of the sales teams. And and shout out to the lead uh, older white gentleman. Even back then, he was older. By now, he's probably I don't know, he's probably 70s or so. His name was B.J. Polk, Bernard J. Polk. And he led huh. the, that sales team. I reported to him and I went to him at 24 years old and I asked him, I said, I said, uh, BJ, where, where do you see my career going? You, you think um, you see me at the associate director level, director, vice president? And this older white gentleman who I reported to told me, nah, I really only see you as section manager, which was at that time only one level higher than where I was already at 24. Hmm. And man, I was stunned by that. I, I was hurt by that in a lot of ways. Uh, and I have since that time used that as motivation, uh, mm. among other things for my grind, bro. Mm. Um, to this day, even if I, as I talk about it, I feel some kind of way about it. Absolutely. And that was 20 years ago, you yeah. know? Um, so, so, uh, I, I think that was fairly low. <laughs> uh, uh, I think certainly my approach to going high uh, has been to prove them wrong, basically. Right. Um, and so that's what I tried to do, man. Beautiful and brilliant. And it's, it's, it's great when you can do that mental jujitsu to take these lights that are, that come like you, you can't prevent them from coming, but to, to take them and flip it, to use it then for your own benefit, as opposed to being, you know, baited into, uh, something that's ultimately going to end up being a detriment you know, yeah. for, for your long-term career. That's, sure. that's, that's a, it's a beautiful outcome. Now look at where you at, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah. And it yeah, reminds man. me of this quote, like, um, like your, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher it somewhat, but basically it's like your worth has nothing to do with other people's low perceptions of you. Totally. Like that's their baggage. That has nothing to do with your worth and your abilities. You know mm -hmm. what, your worth and your abilities are. It's about how much you grind. Um, next question. Um, if you were to describe your journey in one word, what would it be? Ooh, you know, I, I'd say fortunate, if not, if not blessed uh, for mm. the religiously inclined. Um, uh, man, uh, a, a person with my situation, my background, um, it's, it could have still could have been a lot worse than it was. It could have been a lot worse than it was, but it, it, it is not going back to the notion of initial cards. Uh, 
I was definitely not set up with the best set of cards, not the worst, but certainly not the best. Um, and and uh, a lot of folks don't get a chance to make it out of uh, the, my type of situations for a lot of different reasons. But the truth is, um, one of those reasons typically is not intellect. That's what's mm. so sad about it. Right. Uh, it, it's not because these guys aren't smart enough. These ladies aren't smart enough. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I have to say that there's a lot of times when I look back and I say, wow, you know, I, I was on this path and, and that was going to end up in a, in a bad place for me, potentially catastrophic for my future. Um, and something happened to get me off of that path. Um, and, and so, you know, they usually, and this is an overused and overworked aphorism, but they say that, you know, kind of luck finds those that work hard. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've, I've certainly tried to, uh, put in the work, uh, and, and be prepared for the, the blessings that come along the way. And, um, and I think that's, that's been very um, helpful and beneficial to achieving some form of satisfactory life at this point. Oh, that's, man, that's awesome. And it's a beautiful thing, you know, when you put the work in and then, you know, like you said, good fortune comes your way or divine intervention um, comes your way and those blessings are heaped upon you. If, For sure. Um, what is your personal definition of success this doesn't need to be true for everyone this isn't you know other people don't need to live by this code or this this idea but yeah for you what do you hold yourself accountable to what do you what do you try to achieve to feel successful man it's really easy bro it's really easy success to me is being able to comfortably sleep at night <laughs> that's it that's all i want what does that look like in reality if people are like, oh, yeah, that sounds very cute, Mr. Marketing Guy? What do you mean? There are several aspects that one can describe when thinking about being able to sleep at night. Some of them are tangible. I talked about not wanting to live check to check. Right. You know, growing up that way, that is not what's up. I'm telling right. you. Yeah. It is not what's up. So right. there's the tangible side of it. But then there's the intangible side. And for me, that's that weighs even heavier, which is the the side for me, which which suggests that you, you have to be a realist that you don't live in a world created by you or that a world that I said earlier necessarily cares about you. So mm. you you have to make sure that in order to be successful out here, you're able to adapt to what has brought your way in life or in life situations. But in that adaptation, don't lose who you are. Mm, speak on it. Be who you are because who you are is unique. And there are some people that may not get down with your type of vibe. Now, that's okay. That doesn't also mean, by the way, that you need to say, well, there's some people that don't get down with my type of vibe, so therefore I don't need to adapt. That's not what we're saying here. What we're saying is there's a combination of adapting to your situation in order for you to be successful, but done in a way that right. you could sleep at night because you are who you are and you expressed who you are through that adaptation. Right. So, so that, 
is what it is for me. So when I run into barriers and run into problems or run into things like that, I search for the truest version of me uh, to solve that. And then I try to adjust it and deliver it in a way uh, that's going to be uh, beneficial and palatable uh, for me and, and the people I care about. Yeah. That's, and you know, what I hear in that is, is integrity. Indeed. Right? So, that's the word. So, so in your adaptation, you make sure that you don't lose your integrity. So if you can find uh, a medium like where you're, you're adapting to a situation and it becomes a win-win great and if if not if if your if your integrity has to be compromised then maybe it's time for you to move on from that situation but it is it is for me yeah. i won't be able to sleep at night and that's absolutely. that's what it comes down to mm. absolutely beautiful beautiful and then and then lastly you know there's there's a lot of, of baggage that it, the world heaps on us um but still you know we keep shaking it off and coming up with with most swag than a little bit as black yeah. men like it's yeah. uh our swag stays on 10. So in spite of all of the hatred and vitriol that we receive, um, what do you love most about being a black man? You, you know, you know, brother, you actually said it already. Um, I, I, uh, I've said this to anyone that, you know, has asked some form of a question like this or, and, and what I've said is, the thing that makes me most proud to be a part of the African-American zeitgeist is the simple fact that if people really knew what we as a culture have gone through in this country, I mean, not just, oh, yeah, there was slavery, blah, blah. No, I'm talking about day-to-day right. life. right. Okay, I have an 80 year old uncle up in Portland. Every time I talk to him, I go, and I always talk to him about, you know, what it was like. And, and man, times were, man, it was hard. Right. And among, I mean, just to say the least. And, and the way I, w- I would answer the question is I am, the thing that makes me most proud uh, is the fact that I'm part of, the, of a group of people that any lesser of a group would have perished. Absolutely. We would, they would not be here. Okay. The strength that exists within this culture. And and yeah, and we, you know, my folks get on my own nerves too, just like everybody. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, but the strength that this culture has had, not only to persevere for itself, but to also do it for others along the way. Right. You know, I got a I got an eighty year old um, father in law who is Indian of Indian descent. And I, I'm in his house right now, and I, I've had these conversations with him. Like, okay, man, you got here in '67. You realize all of that benefit that not all of it, but a lot of the initial platform that you were able to jump off of as a culture and an immigrant, you know, a lot of that stuff was set by what black folks and Latinos to another degree as well Uh did, you know? And so you never hear black folks say, you know, uh, you know, 
I only want equality for black folks. They say, no, no, I want equality for black folks, but I want it for everybody. Absolutely. You know? We know what it's and like. We know what it's like. We know what it's like. And we're not, you know, we, we, we know that injustice to this person is going to be me tomorrow, mm-hmm. you know? So, so that, that's my answer, man, is that, is that I, I get to be part of a, what I feel like is an exclusive club of the strongest people on the planet. Mm. Mm. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of evidence to go along with that in terms of how we impact the planet. I'm always impressed. You know, I was a total tangent, but to your, to your point in terms of exclusive club, I was in Brazil this past December and I was hanging out with some dudes from this small town and from the north of Brazil. And these dudes were like, oh, and they're <laughs> this all in Portuguese. They're like, oh, you're from California? You love hip hop? I'm like, of course. Hold up, hold up, man. You you know Portuguese like that? Let's <laughs> yeah, talk, let's yeah, talk yeah. about that for a minute. Yeah, I got let's... I got I got a little I got a little oh. lingo skills. I got a little lingo. Oh. I'm, okay, I'm, I'm, a... I'm fluent in Portuguese for sure. Oh my um, goodness, man. That's a whole other level of excellence. Nice work. <laughs> I, I appreciate it, brother. But while mm. while we're there, they then just decided to recite just about every West Coast rapper ever. They find out from California. I'm not talking about the new dudes or uh, just you, the old you, dudes. You, you, yeah. All of them. You're talking about, you're talking about like, like hieroglyphics and all those guys. They were like, <laughs> hiero, they just call now like Spice One. I'm like, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you Welcome were not, to the ghetto. Right? You know what I mean? <laughs> I was like, wow, okay. Because uh, I can see if they were like E40, NWA. Yeah, okay, yeah. got it. Snoop Dogg. Yeah. Every, but they were like, they went beyond Tupac and like, Keek, the, Keek the, the superstar, sneak. yeah. They, I promise you, they brought up Keek the Sneak, and I was like, "You gotta be, you gotta be really on your town business to know Keek the Sneak." But no, they were like, "Yeah." So, I think that's just a reflection of how impactful our culture is. And these dudes fell in love with West Coast hip hop in particular, and then any artist from the West Coast they just listened to, and knew the whole, knew their whole catalogs and. Was completely into it. I think that's a that's you a sample. That's a sample, right? It's not just the West Coast. It's like that's a sample of Black culture. You know what's really cool? Uh, uh, you, the group I'm thinking about. If they called out ill mannered players, by the way, I'd be impressed. <laughs> Imp. But uh, but uh, right. <laughs> that, 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 for, for all you listeners out there, go look that one up. Um, uh, I, I, what I think is really cool, man, is when you go to some of the sub-Saharan African countries and you see this sort of circular influence that we've had on each other african-americans right, versus, right, right? like right. like obviously our culture is very much rooted in theirs but then you see you go back there and you're seeing them right it's yeah. very it's very cool very yeah. cool beautiful it's a beautiful thing man and i think that's uh that's a that's a great answer to the question and i just want to say man from the bottom of my heart i appreciate you taking the time and to hop on here and to share your story. I think it is a compelling story. I know it's one that I am going to benefit from personally, and I will certainly listen to this episode several times, but uh, I know all of my subscribers and listeners out there are going to love hearing this story as well. So I appreciate you and thank you for taking the time, brother. Oh man, it is all love, man. I appreciate you and your interest and, and, you know, uh, uh, certainly I'm, I'm happy to the extent that I can, 
you know, help some folks, uh, you know, either with a story or with, you know, some more proactive deeds, you know, that's, that's what it's about. You know, that's where your legacy is left. It's, it's what you did for folks. So, you know, hopefully um, uh, th- this can help some people think about things a different way, man. And I just appreciate the, the opportunity and, and it's always a pleasure to connect with you, brother. Yeah, man. Yo, let's, let's, when this, when this pandemic situation is over, man, let's, let's get together real time. Man. And, and uh, Oh, you already know. Yeah. It's all good. I'll talk to you soon. Yes, sir. Peace.